Welcome to this Communiques podcast. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim and your host for this edition. In this podcast, we have three guests, all from the United States of America, who provide their perspectives on work and life that's relevant to health and aged care. We touch on topics examining the role of the individual, the group and broader society, all with a focus of helping us to deliver better care for patients, residents and the general community. As we produce this podcast during the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States of America, the interviews all touch on this subject. The interviews examine personal accounts of life in New York, why turning a blind eye to the little slips and lapses in delivering care can have devastating long-term consequences, and we conclude with an overview of pandemics. Our first segment is titled New York, New York, or Why People Trump Money. Our guest is Priyesh Upreti, a senior executive with KPMG who is living and working in New York City. Our second segment is called Normalization of Deviance, or Why Turning a Blind Eye is Dangerous. Our guest for that interview is Professor John Banger from the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and the Center for Ethics at Emory University in Atlanta. Our third and final segment is titled Pandemics or the Textbook Comes Alive. Our guest is Dr. Nita Madhav, Chief Executive Officer of Metabiota, who has researched and published on pandemics. Let's now listen to our first interview. New York, New York, or why people trump money? New York City now has more COVID-19 cases than many countries around the world. With a death toll in the tens of thousands, life is certainly far from what we usually picture in the Big Apple. Priyesh Upreti, a resident of Brooklyn, New York City, provides a personal account of what it's like to be in New York during the COVID-19 pandemic with his partner and twin toddlers. Let's now listen to that interview. Priyesh, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Grant. Glad to be here. As I read the headlines in the New York Times, it, it describes a terrible week ahead in America, one of death and sadness, the White House has warned. And there's over 350,000 people with COVID infection in the United States. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how your family came to be in New York? Sure, I'm glad to. So we've been here for uh, almost seven years now. So I'm a management consultant based in New York City, do strategy consulting here. I was doing similar work with KPMG in Australia. So my wife is North American and we were in Australia for almost 10 years. And after 10 years, we decided to at least move to North America. And New York was the best place for us because with consulting traveling, it's easier from New York so to go anywhere here. So we both moved across with our respective companies. How are you and your family at the moment? We are good, um, you know, thankfully, luckier than most people. But having said that, for the last three weeks, we haven't really left the apartment. I personally have left twice just to get the fresh groceries with Amazon Prime and Instacart and other, you know, the grocery delivery services. We haven't even gotten a delivery window for two weeks now. And we're not kidding. So... You try multiple times during the day and we haven't been able to get the window. So fresh groceries, you have to go out and get it. But as of yesterday, Dr. Deborah Burks, who's leading the COVID-19 response for the White House, she even suggested that to cut back on going to the grocery stores. So we're good. Health-wise, we're good. It's because we are not leaving the apartment and taking all the precautions. What's the situation like when you look out of your apartment or you're on the streets in New York? How does, how does that strike you? <laughs> That's a great question. You see one-tenth of the cars you used to see from my apartment. When, when I went out a couple of times, you know, you hardly see anybody, right? So hundreds of people is essentially now few people right? So a few runners here and there. Um, I think people are taking this quite seriously now. They weren't two or three weeks ago. And with, uh, you mentioned, you know, 350,000 plus cases United States wide, but you got to realize that that number is based on people actually being tested. A lot of people probably haven't gone to test themselves, scared, 
they might contract the virus at you know the clinics or hospitals and the way the health systems are here in the states a lot of people you know don't have the money even though the the the, the covid testing might be free but if they are to contract the disease then the treatment cost is quite high if you don't have insurance and if you have insurance then the uh, the co-pays and stuff like that it can be quite hefty unless the government decides to waive that so that brings us really to, to the complexities of the pandemic. And you, you've mentioned the difficulty of just getting food and getting any fresh air. What other aspects of the pandemic do you think have been particularly difficult to, to navigate? It's, um, you know, you know, for us, it's, it's been a first world problem, right? Because we, got, you know, we can still work from home, right? So you know, with Zoom and the meetings and what have you. But when you think about for a lot of people you know, who are in hospitality, who are in events, who are, you know, travel and all that, it's very difficult, right? So for them, working from home is not really an option. It just doesn't work that way. And, and you can see, you'll probably see uh, the layoffs that are happening around the United States, right? So, for, so it brings a lot of social issues for a lot of people, right? So personally speaking, we haven't been impacted, but, but it's, it's hard not to be impacted when you hear news of a lot of folks losing their jobs and what have you. So uh, I think it's going to be a while before, the, unless they find the vaccine, the situation is not going to get better, in my opinion. So, so the uh, predictions of the vaccine are probably 12 to 18 months away. The, the, oh, wow. the, the social dislocation and the uh, focus on the economy seems to have been preeminent. And as a doctor, I found it confusing that our main direction has been on the economy rather than the health effects. You come from a different background. So how do you see it? And what do you think the emphasis in, the, in, in New York and America generally has been? That's a great question, right? You keep on getting mixed messages, right? You know, you think about, I'll give you a couple examples, right? So you look at countries like even Canada or New Zealand for that matter, right? So the universal basic income, if you will, you know, these are all consumption-based societies, right? So you put money into people's pocket, what happens is they're going to go and spend it, right? So that keeps the velocity of money going around the economy. So, you know, in the States, what's happened is the, you know, the trillions of dollars of the stimulus, if you will, in my opinion, it's not a stimulus unless it gets to people very quickly, right? So the $1,200 for folks earning $75,000 or less, and this whole discussion in Congress about means testing, what have you, the bureaucracy is going to cause problems for a lot of people, right? So I don't think they're going to be able to get money to people very quickly, which should happen in situations like this. It hasn't happened. So to answer your question, so they're probably more worried about the economy than solving a public health issue and a massive public health issue with thousands of deaths, right? So uh, I really hope they rectify that soon. I think they realize the magnitude of the problem now. But the question is, do, do they have the political will to actually go and do something about and, you know, value human lives over other things, I guess. But if there are no people, if the health is not there, then the economy is going to suffer anyways, right? That, that's been my line of argument, though, because I don't have the economics background. People sometimes discount it or say that the initiatives in health are sufficient to ramp up um, to address the, the crisis. Because you've got two two little ones, do you feel alone in this? Do you feel like you're isolated, stuck in, and there there is no one to help? Uh, I've been um, lucky, right? So we've have we have a very very close family, right? So my wife, you know, and the broader family, we talk every day. My parents live in New Zealand. Uh, my in laws live in Vancouver, Canada. So we talk every day. So we don't feel alone, you know, because there's a regular dialogue. And having 16-month-old twins, you know, and full-time work keeps you, keeps you pretty busy. <laughs> having said that, you know, uh, you do miss uh, fresh air, having some exercise and what have you. But on the other side, you know, feel so much luckier than a lot of people who don't have that luxury, right? So, so haven't, you know, we'll ride this out, you know, but feeling alone, we haven't felt that, no. 
Right. Well, that, that's that's very fortunate because I think a lot of people are feeling alone with the social distancing and the, the lockdown, both in the community and, and in aged care. Do you have any uh-huh. insights around what's happening to older people in the States and those in what are called long-term care or skilled nursing facilities that we call residential aged care services in Australia? Right. Look, I, mean, I can only uh, share what I've heard and read, right? So I, I can totally imagine would be quite lonely because, you know, um, I'm especially, let's give an example in living in New York City, right? So it's right now the epicenter, you know, the coronavirus or the COVID-19 in the U.S. You're probably seeing thousands of cases every day with more and more people getting tested, new cases coming up, and the death toll is rising. And, and that not to mention that other pre-existing conditions that people had before and not getting prioritized because of COVID-19, that's not captured in the official count, right? So to answer your question, I would imagine it will be very lonely with families not being able to visit. And visiting folks like that would also expose them to um, the virus, right? So, So how do you maneuver that? It's a very, very tricky question, right? So I wouldn't want to be in that position as a family. And they probably wouldn't want to, you know, they probably want to see the family, but getting there would not only expose your own fat folks to the risk, but other people in the uh, in the care. That's certainly something that, that our team's been working on and debating. Uh, having heard you describe the situation, uh, I, I'm wondering how do you remain so calm? Well, you have to. You don't have any choice, right? You know, I can only control what I can control about my family, staying home, taking all the precautions, right? You know, washing hands, uh, not going out. So I'm. So we made a decision a few weeks ago that if someone had to leave the house, one person leaves, right? So to go to grocery or whatever. And other than that, we haven't done anything going out, right? So I can control that. We can control that, right? What we cannot control is, uh, you know, the broader other things, right? So, so considering that, you know, you, you kind of compartmentalize this and, and you got to stay sane, right? Because this is, uh, is going to go on for some time, so there's no point you know, in week three or, you know, you think too much about it, about your own personal inconvenience when a lot of people out in the society are suffering a lot more, right? So, so our issue is, you know, you know, you know it's, it's not as big compared to a lot of people. So we put things in perspective. All right. Um, have there been anything, so have you had any experiences that were out of the ordinary things that you didn't expect? Any acts of kindness or acts of panic that you've seen? So there are two things there, right? So the acts of kindness, we're seeing, you know, um, you know, this is a few of our friends and uh, myself, uh, we help our tenants with their rent, right? So, you know, because they lost the jobs and the income's been impacted for some time. And if they're not going to get the assistance from, um, from the U.S. government, it's going to be very difficult. We've seen a number of people do that. People are donating to the food banks and, you know, some other things. Uh, work situations, folks have agreed not to take a pay rise or, you know, in my opinion, if they ask broader people, hey, would you consider forgiving a certain percentage of your income this year cut so that your colleagues could remain in the jobs? I think a lot of people would say, yes, I would do the same, right? So, so you see some of these things, right? So personal kindness you're seeing, but we need to see broader systematic response from the state and the federal government a lot faster. Thank you. Uh, have you thought about the future? You talked earlier about focusing on the now rather than projecting too far ahead because projecting too far ahead tends to create anxiety and makes us not function as well as we need to function now. What are your thoughts about the future? I mean, look, you know, human beings are pretty resilient creatures, right? You know, there will be a lot of pain, but, you know, we've always come out of that, right? So, you know, the short to medium term future may seem bleak but there's always light at the end of the tunnel uh the sooner they find the vaccine the better and they not worry about exclusivity to who makes a vaccine and who profits you know if they put that in the back burner worry about getting this thing done well we'll come out of it sooner to fully answer a question right now we're compartmentalized it but i think the new normal would be slightly different uh so when you think about air travel when you think about going to concerts or restaurants, what have you, even after this thing will, you know, gets a little more controlled, 
I think people would be wary for some time, right? So the social impact of that would, I think, quite prolong. And also on the professional front, what will happen is as people get used to working from home with, you know, with the collaboration technology, if they get better, I'm sure they will. And if you're a company and owning a P&L, and if you see the productivity not as impacted, it may not be 100%, but it's pretty good, and you balance that with the operational cost, then they may even decide to, uh, you know, go along with this. You know, it could fundamentally change the way the service is delivered, the work is delivered, you know, the way, uh, I think we'll, uh, this is Priyashu Preti's view. Uh, I think this will have an impact across the board. This will have impact on the economy uh, because as people go to work, they, they buy food, they buy lunches, you know, they buy coffees, they buy clothes. It's a whole heap of things that goes around, right? So, uh, so I think the longer this goes, it will have an impact across the board. The new normal may be different. So um, who knows? <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting observation today when I uh, got up. Uh, I looked at my suits and thought I hadn't worn one now for four <laughs> weeks and, and then wondered why why I spend my life in a suit. Uh, but just as a, as a small um, indication of um, what we do in dressing up to go out, to go to the job and the impacts are so far reaching that we don't think about it. Yeah, you know, something funny uh, is even if they ask me to wear a suit in two or three months, I don't think any of my suits would fit anyways. Like, you know, <laughs> so what did they say? Either you're going to come out supremely unfit or have um, a few more drinks. So I was today, my wife was telling me, so I was holding the, one of the kids and the challenge was to do um, to 100 um, squats holding the kid. The kid was happy for the first 50. Then as I got super tired, it was not fun, but we finished it. So the challenge to do every day for 30 days. And my brother-in-law has thrown another challenge to add 100 push-ups for another 30 day on top of that. So that's how you keep saying. <laughs> thank, thank you for those observations. And just in conclusion, given that uh, the experiences that you've had, what lessons do you think your experiences and what's happening in New York have for Australia, given that you know that we're, we're a country that's relaxed and you know, happy-go-lucky generally? Look, you know, I lived in Australia for 19 years, right? So more than half my life before I moved here, you know, very close to my heart, right? Don't take this for granted. Pandemic does not discriminate whether you're old or young, rich or poor, sane or, you know, or not so sane, right? Uh, we need to remember it started with one person, right? Look at it. It's been, what, more than 10,000 deaths around the world, if not more, the prediction is, you know, even in the U.S., you know, the best case scenario, 100 to 250K deaths, right? I hope it doesn't go that far, but, the, the, you know, these are not good things, right? So when I see people at Coogee Beach or Bondi or elsewhere, you know, or even Frankston, all those places, people going out taking it for granted, I think that's silly. We were like that probably two or three weeks ago in New York, and I hope it doesn't happen there. I think people should take seriously, stay inside when they can, and just look at us, look at Italy, look at Spain, and take this very seriously. Thanks very much, Priyash. That, that I think, is a, a sound note to finish on with, with those lessons. Um, I wish you well uh, with your family and your experiences in New York. Thanks again for giving up your time at this very difficult. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and, and please stay safe. Thank you. Goodbye. Let's now listen to our next interview. The segment's called Normalization of Deviance or Why Turning a Blind Eye is Dangerous. We can all think of a time when we have bent the rules or deviated from the norm in order to make our lives and work easier. Professor Banja, a senior academic and medical ethicist at Emory University, Atlanta, joins us for a fascinating discussion on the theory behind this principle and the impact on resident and staff safety. John explains how this may play out during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Professor John Banger, welcome to this podcast. We're, we're very fortunate to have John, who is a senior academic and deep thinker from Emory University in Atlanta. And 
what we're discussing today uh, might sound complicated by calling it the normalization of deviance. That's an expression, as I understand it and have taught it in the past, is why we accept uh, behaviours in our clinical practice and care of older people that doesn't quite match the evidence and that we continue to do that because nothing seems to go wrong until there's a major catastrophe. So, John, welcome. Thank you. Very nice to be talking to you. Quite, quite astonishing. Here we are at opposite ends of the world. and uh... it, It's remarkable. John, how would you explain normalisation of deviance to families and undergraduates coming through in health professions? Any human being who is faced with having to perform a rule-bound task where first you have to do this, then you do this, then this, then this, then this, and then you're done, will oftentimes be tempted to change how he or she performs that task if that task performance is tedious, energy-depleting, cumbersome, difficult. And it doesn't matter what we're talking about. We could be talking about giving medications to a patient. We could be talking about putting on a football uniform uh, or doing a particular kind of exercise or, or whatever uh, it is. And this affects, like I say, virtually all professions that have to perform rule-bound tasks. Uh, again, the bottom line is uh, even though you're taught the policy, the procedure, the standard, this is how you do it, this is the way the experts say you do it, this is the way we do it at our facility, our hospital, our business, whatever. Uh, if, that, if that system operator senses that he or she has a better way of doing it, an easier way of doing it, a less energy depleting way of doing it, like I say, they're going to be very, very tempted to do it their way. So that's the first part of this, uh, uh, the, the, the normalization of deviance. The second part comes in is that when they start doing things their way and nothing bad happens, and in fact, they achieve their goal of performing that task, of securing whatever objective that task is all about, uh, easier, more efficiently uh, than, than previously, that will be reinforcing. That is to say that the deviance from the rule, the policy, the guideline, whatever, will now become normalized. And in a lot of instances, when they then teach somebody else how to do this, uh, you know, I'm thinking especially of our clinicians in healthcare, they might very well say, well, we know that the organizational policy is to do it this way, but I've been doing it that way for years. And it works just as fine. It works just as well. Uh, so uh, let me show you how I do it. Uh, and, and that's what we see. Uh, and it, it is, and I'll stop with this. It is quite astonishing then when something catastrophic or disastrous does happen and our quality assurance people go in and study how that disaster has occurred, what they will oftentimes find is a whole bunch of people deviating from rules, regulations, standards, and so on, because that's the way they've been doing it for long periods of time. So in a nutshell, that's what the normalization of deviance looks like. And uh, I, I said I was going to end with that, but let me end with this. People who, who deviate from the norm generally almost always don't do it to be evil or mischievous or hurt others. They do it because they're pressured to produce. They believe that they can hit their productivity targets better if they, and faster if they do it their way than if they do it the way they're supposed to do. It. Those are the kind of dynamics you know, that, that, that drive this phenomenon. What I might do is give you a specific example. With the COVID pandemic, our team's been thinking about how we improve the mindset around infection control and how we try and motivate or educate staff around the absolute necessity for infection control. When we know over the years and in my time in clinical practice, people don't adhere to hand washing to the same level that 
we're instructed to. We don't always wear the gloves. We sometimes move from one bed to the other and nothing seems to happen um, adversely. My concern now with the COVID-19 is we know that it's incredibly infectious and has a high case fatality rate, which leaves no margin for error. What what do you think is the likelihood that we're able to change those ingrained behaviours in such a short time? Mm -hmm. I have two answers to that. I think that if we are going to succeed in good rule compliance with infection control, and I so agree with you, uh, and I so agree also with the challenge that, that you see here. This is unprecedented. Uh, and uh, consequently, there are going to be a lot of people who will resist doing this. They're just not going to believe it. It seems to me that the two things that we absolutely have to have in place to achieve better rule compliance and mitigate these risks are, number one, very assertive and able leadership. Leadership that just insists uh, on rule compliance, and that will penalize rule deviations. The second thing I think we need is terrific role modeling. Again, a, a representation or a characteristic of leadership, but whenever individuals see others, and by the way, this is a very interesting feature of the normalization of deviance too. If you would ask, let's say nurses on a unit, who are the people who do things their way and who are the people who are really, really rule compliant? They'll tell you, they know who they are, right? Because we see these people acting every day. Consequently, when peers see one another deviating from rules, they need to remind one another, you can't do it that way. This is the way we have to do it. This is the way we must do it. So those would be the two strategies that I would absolutely insist on if, if, if we're going to get this under control. Given the COVID pandemic and the fear that staff will be absent or uh, just be, because of their concerns. I'm trying to imagine how I could be strict and confident of retaining the staff and am I going to relax to make sure that they feel like they're safe and want to come back to work? How would you suggest we go about being assertive yet not frightening assertive enough that convinces people that they must change but people won't simply just walk away in frustration because they disagree with us or believe that we're being draconian and simply abusing our position because it's an emergency yeah yeah uh, i think one way of doing that is to have group meetings centered around just what you said to present these are the issues. This is what, as an administrator, I'm feeling uncomfortable about. This is what I fear. And I wonder how the rest of you think about that, because we have to set aside those fears. We have to accept doing things that we might not want to do, given the very unprecedented nature of this kind of thing. And again, you know, I come back to good leadership of being able to do that. There's no way that you can get around this. This is going to be very, very uncomfortable to talk about, to confront, and also to implement the kind of rule compliances that we, that we need. Um, but I think that one has to be assertive uh, in this and you know, face the problem head on, but to have, again, the kind of conversation and to put it just the way you did, that this is unprecedented, this is new, these are the things that we're worried about, what do you, what do you think? John, do you have any tips about how to approach or verbalise it? So you've talked about how to arrange it. Do you have a form of words or some catchphrases that you find work or in terms of convincing people or, or phrases that can be particularly damaging where the intention is good but that they're easily misread or misunderstood? Mm -hmm. So what I've read in the literature is, number one, you must always target the behavior and not the person. So something like, Bill, I was watching the way you did X, and I was just wondering why you uh, do it that way. Uh, I was taught somewhat differently. Let me show you how I do it. Maybe I'm missing something. By the way, that's a good phrase. Uh, maybe I'm missing something. Tell me so that you know, I'm, perhaps I can learn from you or we can learn from one another. And you're right. What you want to do 
is you don't want to humiliate or embarrass people. But that's part of the problem of healthcare because a lot of clinicians take enormous pride in what they do. It, the, the, the very idea that they are doing something that is contrary to policy and procedure and therefore might hurt someone might immediately be interpreted as a character slur uh, on, on them. And that would be something good to talk about, uh, you know, at, at a meeting that kind of tries to psychologically prepare people who are working in the trenches, namely that when we point to a particular behavior that you do, a particular clinical behavior that we do, we're not criticizing you. What we're simply trying to do is bring everyone to a particular consistency of, uh, of performance uh, around this. I think our, our, our podcast is too short to actually uh, enumerate a lot of these things, but finding what words to say and how you say them, and what kind of body language that you use. And, and to take an attitude that when someone approaches me and says, John, perhaps you should do it this way, what that individual is actually doing is trying to ramp up our performance, trying to help me be a better clinician, rather than trying to embarrass or humiliate me. I mean, that's the kind of attitudinal change that we need to be about here. And by the way, Joe, there are lots of facilities that have that kind of atmosphere, that attitudinal atmosphere, that when colleagues go up to one another and talk about their practice behaviors and so on, it's not with the intent of putting them down. It's with the intent of making them better clinicians, which is fabulous. We should all want to be better nurses and therapists and physicians, right? But so, indeed, uh, I'm just uh, so I'm going to be devil's advocate here, and, and uh, I can hear people saying, "Well, that that's all well and good to do, and, and that will take us time." We're in the we we are in an emergency response now. I don't have the time to be polite. I don't have the time to sit there and counsel someone. Why can't they see that this is I important? Don't know. I don't know how to do it. Right? I haven't been taught how to do it. It's very uncomfortable for me to walk up to Dr. Ibrahim and say, you know, Dr. Joe, the way you're doing that particular, I'm not going to do that for heaven's sake. I might lose my job. I might get fired if I do. It's precisely those kinds of attitudes, by the way, that account for why deviations become normalized. I mean, why do people deviate from rules, standards, and do it for long, long periods of time? It's because they're allowed to do it. They're allowed to do it. How do we build that level of assertiveness or cooperation in a, in a very short period of time? Take a deep breath. Walk up to that individual. Try it out. And you know what? It might not be as bad as you fear. And, and, and that's an interesting, uh, I think, thought or, or, or observation because what we really fear when we approach someone and try to quote unquote correct or modify his or her behavior, we fear a backlash. We fear that individual getting angry at us. We fear that that person will no longer be our colleague or friend. That fear might be totally misplaced by the way. Uh, it may very well be the case that that individual would be grateful for an instruction, a recommendation. But if you're, if you're simply too intimidated to do it, where you simply feel too uncomfortable doing it, we are doomed. The, uh, just on that point, I was thinking that if we go in with that mindset of fear or anxiety, I imagine that shows up in our body language and the person we're going to talk about is preparing for conflict rather than being receptive to commentary about how to do things according to to the policy or according to practice that would protect them and the resident. It, would that be right? I think so. Uh, one of the uh, suggestions that, that just occurred to me and uh, how does one speak up about these kinds of issues rather than stay quiet, stay silent and allow these uh, deviating behaviors to continue is that we need to respect the hierarchical nature of healthcare. 
so that if it is a physician, for example, who is deviating from rules and regulations, it should be another physician who approaches him or her. If it's a nurse, it should be uh, another nurse. And that these conversations should start out in a very non-threatening kind of way, such that if the, uh, if the system operator continues to deviate from rules and regulations, then you kind of want to ramp it up uh, and perhaps uh, eventually uh, if that person is just recalcitrant, take it up to a higher level of administrative leadership. I, I'm just thinking in terms of, again, I come back to this thought about, will I be autocratic? Will I just lay down the law and expect people to change? Will I, in a sense, take that deep breath and, and be highly confronting to get my message over quickly and definitively? What's the likely response with that? Will I change the behavior or not? You know, uh, if, if it's done correctly, if it's, if, if, uh, it's done in a non-threatening kind of way, if it's done in a respectful way, if it's done, you know, in terms of uh, this is the way I understand we're supposed to do this, but maybe I've gotten it wrong watching the way you do it. Could we talk about this? The, the, the literature shows that at least two-thirds of the time, there is a change in behavior, a positive change in behavior, a change in behavior for the better. And that should give us pause, I think, for optimism about this. You know, though, it is good to talk about this because this problem, this failure to speak up, this failure to correct I don't like to use the word deviant behaviors because it sounds like the person is deviant, and that's not what we're talking about here. But, but this is endemic. Uh, in, you know, in, in, in all of healthcare, uh, especially, by the way, in nursing. And I, I, I wonder if we shouldn't, and this kind of gets away from the content of our, of our podcast, which is on the pandemic, but we should start talking about this kind of stuff in medical school, in nursing school, in therapy school. And by the way, it's very, very much bound up with a kind of narcissism. This idea that whatever I do, regardless of how much it deviates from rules and regulations, I can do it. It's safe. It's informed. Somehow, I'm special. And, and, and therefore, the work that I do is special. And in no way would it ever harm anyone. And Dr. Ibrahim, if you imply that somehow I am harming people, you're the one who's wrong. And by the way, we're on, I'm on my way to hating and, and that's the kind of attitude I think that we could address in our training programs because it's just so corrosive and it's obviously not uh, going to eventuate in good patient care. I refer to that notion really as because I'm a caring person, whatever I do must be worthwhile and positive. And I've been doing this for 19 years, by the way. I'm not an amateur. I know what, I know what I'm doing. And I have faith in my doing. And my patients love me. And you should love me too. All right. What I might do is just change um, tack for a moment. And I wanted to talk. Uh, Prof, sorry. Can I give you one last question? Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I just thought when you were talking about that, you two, one idea is this idea that it's a new act. It, it, hand washing for a previous context is very different to hand washing now. In, in other words, the consequence is dramatically different. If you don't wash your hands and give someone gastro, well, a few people will get gastro. If you don't wash your hands, someone gets flu. That's bad, but the risk of death for one person is not that high, right? The risk of COVID entering a nursing home, the consequence is so catastrophic because every single person in that home is likely not to be offered a ventilator, um, which means that you know, 20% of that population, death may become inevitable. So I wonder if you use that consequence as a, as a bridge. Do you say to people, you know what, we've been doing things differently because the situation has been different, but now the consequence is dramatically different and we need to do it this new way. I mean, we've had this discussion with Joe. Joe and I have had this discussion and he's got this opinion that that, that is to become complicit, to say that you should, I mean, why should we excuse that hand washing should ever be compromised even in a normal situation. But in the short term, with three weeks to go, I wonder if that's an approach to create a bridge. And particularly, we could add enforcement to that as well. We could add new enforcement measures, you know, two people checks on things that we don't normally have in normal situations that we add now 
to add a level of surveillance? Just I wonder if that's a question to put forward, whether well, that's a good strategy. In thinking about, again, how do we communicate and have discourse over these topics, one of the things that I've learned in, in just oh, commu empathic communications, one of the things that I've learned is oftentimes it's not really the content of the message, it's how you say it. It's how you come across. Uh, so uh, are you sitting down? Is the tone of your voice calm? Uh, are, are you, you know, some healthcare professionals, all they do is talk. They don't listen. They don't know how to listen. Uh, and, and consequently, if you're that kind of individual and you're just going to dominate the conversation, that's not very good, you know, a very good communication strategy uh, either. Consequently, it, it might be a very, very wise thing to do to have your social workers, your psychiatrists, your mental health people, people who are trained in empathic communication, tackle this very problem and try to get suggestions out to your clinicians all through Australia as soon as possible. I mean, this would be an enormously worthwhile project for a country to have because these are these are very, very critical problems. I think just on that, John, the the issue about consequences, given the, the pandemic has substantially greater consequences, do you think that that will drive a change in behaviour or does it really, does it make people become more fixated if it's, if it's not realised within their own workplace? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I... I, I would think that for some people it will. They will realize the gravity of the situation. But I think that, you know, to the extent that you succeed uh, in Australia where we haven't, that is to say that you've been able to flatten that curve. One of the worrisome things <laughs> is that the success of rule compliance in a paradoxical way oftentimes erodes further rule compliance. People become lackadaisical. Well, look, nothing bad is happening, and therefore there's this temptation to go back to the previous way that we're, that we're doing things. So that's something that I would really be quite fearful. That aspect's the, the perennial enemy of prevention in that if prevention works, you never see anything bad happen and therefore you don't believe that it worked. If I, I just come back to the issue of chemical and physical restraint, and I, I wanted to ask, I'm speculating that with less, less external visitors and a greater demand on greater work pressures and the need for greater productivity, that there will be a tendency to resort to chemical and physical restraint at a much lower threshold. And the British Geriatric Society has already forecast this and in a way conceded that this might happen, which I don't agree with. My question to you is, how many times do you need to see an event before it becomes normalised? And if you initially don't agree, when do you fit in with the group? That's, uh, you've identified what the tensions are. First of all, uh, I've been saying for years, it doesn't take very many uh, deviations from the, from the norm. Again, where you succeeded in securing your objective, which is usually some kind of productivity target, doesn't take very many before that, uh, that deviation becomes normalized. Maybe two, three, four at, at, at the most. And then, and then you no longer regard it as a deviation you regard it as a routinized kind of, of behavior. That's incredibly frightening. I, I was thinking that it would be in the at least the tens or 20 uh, events before people became familiar, but to imagine that it would normalize within two or three incidents makes me even more worried now. Mm -hmm. it, 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 you know, I, it's probably contextual. Uh, where the where the risks are, especially if the risk is low, because it's comfortable. You know, you're more comfortable in deviating if if even if it goes wrong or goes badly, if the risk materializes, it's not going to be a big deal. But but remember, deviance becomes normalized because it's very very reinforcing to do something in a way that ultimately is satisfying. Your, your feelings and your emotions are very, very powerful in terms of adopting a particular strategy or a particular way of doing something. Uh, and 
you know, we, we, we still are very, very limbic creatures. We haven't evolved very much beyond, you know, that limbic functioning. Our, our frontal cortices still don't do the work that they're supposed to uh, do. We don't think in terms of uh, Bayesian calculations of risk. We, we, we rather think in terms of, well, how does it feel how the day is going? Is the day going well? How do, you know, and, and that's really, we're up against this very, very human tendency of uh, wanting to get your work done. And uh, it seems like that's what we're doing. Can I, uh, just a final question, then Pratik might want to um, uh, chip in. Um, John, does the, the issue of um, normalisation of deviance persist when there is an adverse outcome that's visible to others? We've talked about, and you know, I've been guilty of it myself, of taking shortcuts and thinking because I'm a doctor, I don't need to do things quite the same way as the textbook tells me to. And colleagues agree and, and we model on each other. Does, does that type of group, think or group culture hold when something awful actually happens. So let, let's go with the example that a patient has been chemically restrained, aspirates and dies, and your colleagues know that was a consequence of it. Does normalisation of deviance persist, that culture persist when those outcomes occur? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is, has the restraint been actually recognised as a deviation? Or is there clinical opinion that says, well, this was a reasonable thing to do in this particular situation? So, you know, I think there's a problem at the get-go. I will tell you that when these things happen, especially in industry, but also in healthcare, people have been, let's say, people have been ignoring the rules and regulations and policies for quite some time. And then something disastrous happens. And then there's an investigation. What very, very frequently occurs is leadership comes down hard on the, on the clinicians or the system operators, uh, and they pound their fist on the table and they insist on rule following. And sometimes they will institute measures uh, like, you know, we haven't been doing timeouts, for heaven's sakes, uh, so we, we absolutely must do them. And so there, you, you will see this insistence on rule compliance for a certain period of time. And then... When things seem to be okay and uh, 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 we seem to have gotten risks under control, people, again, are going to be tempted to lapse back into their previous ways. Also, though, what, 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 what sometimes happens is the technology changes. That is to say, when you did your risk analysis or your root cause analysis and you found out how this disaster happened, you might have said, you know what, if we had a different kind of technology uh, on Tuesday morning, that wouldn't have happened. So let's, let's invest with that. Uh, let's invest in that kind of technology. So in other words, the work environment might change to make rule deviations harder. Yet, that only will introduce other forms of deviation too. And maybe a a good point at which to end is to remind ourselves that this is an ongoing problem. Uh, As the environment changes, as technology changes, as new people come on board with new attitudes and training challenges occur, this normalization of deviance is not going to go away. We always have to remind ourselves it's a real threat and respond accordingly. Again, though, I want to emphasize the need for good leadership, good role modeling, and especially to take all of this very, very, very seriously. John, I understand that you've recently published a a new book. Could you just explain a little bit about uh, that process and how that book would help us? The title is Patient Safety Ethics, and the subtitle, How Vigilance mindfulness, compliance, and humility can make healthcare safer. And one of the chapters in the book uh, is on the normalization of deviance. By the way, we might credit Diane Vaughn, who is the person who originated the term, the normalization of deviance. She's a sociologist at uh, Columbia University, and we owe her the debt of gratitude for uh, uh, making us aware of this phenomenon. The basic idea of the book, though, is really it's at the core of the normalization of deviance. It's, it's how uh, system operators, given 
this tension between production pressures and needing to maintain a safe environment might be able to do it better by thinking a lot, by learning a lot about vigilance, which is basically the monitoring of your external environment, mindfulness, the monitoring of your internal environment, your psychology, how you're feeling at the, at the moment, compliance, which is what we've been talking about, and the phenomenon of humility, which is what we've been talking about too. So that when Dr. Joe comes up to me and says, John, I think it might be better to do it this way. Uh, I'm not going to go to pieces. I'm not going to allow my narcissism to be wounded. I'm going to say, Dr. Joe, thank you for that. That was valuable and important. I think that the word humility really struck a chord with me and I'm embarrassed that I hadn't really thought about that before. The humility in senior staff and health professionals is, I think, critical now that you've raised it in how we approach our situations and our willingness to learn and listen to others. Right. Uh, and, and, and real humility uh, and, and which, by the way, uh, a lot of psychologists feel is not a natural trait. Real humility is, is going to be, that's, that's, the, that's the change, that's the change agent here. If we don't put our egos out there, if we don't allow ourselves to be easily bruised, if our attitude is these practice changes, these practice behaviors that are being recommended are, are all being recommended for the good. It's not my character as a human being that's on the line here. It's the safety of our patients. That's why we're doing all of this. And, and I think it's very important to uh, address that in our medical schools and in our nursing schools and our therapy schools. Thanks very much, John. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. Been a pleasure here. Good luck. Let's now listen to our third and final interview in the segment titled Pandemics or the Textbook Comes Alive. Nita Madhav, the Chief Executive Officer of Metabiota, answers our questions and shares her experience as an infectious disease epidemiologist and lead author of a book chapter published in 2018 called Pandemics, Risks, Impacts and Mitigation. Thanks for joining us, Nita. Well, thank you for having me. I've asked Nita to join us because of her research and academic writing of a chapter titled Pandemics, Risk, Impacts and Mitigation that was published in 2018. That chapter now really sits as a revelation given the current circumstances. Nita, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study pandemics? Well, thank you. Yes, so my background is actually in infectious disease epidemiology and public health, and I've spent um, almost the past 15 years looking specifically at this question of estimating the frequency and severity of epidemics with a look to uh, understanding and quantifying the risk, as well as developing methods for mitigating and managing and being more prepared. A little, a little bit of background would be helpful for our listeners and myself, really, having not studied pandemics. Could you explain what exactly is a pandemic and how is it different to other infectious outbreaks? Well, the definition is uh, not always uh, as crystal clear as one might think, but generally when the public health community is talking about a pandemic, it's a type of um, infectious disease that has a, a very widespread, typically at a global scale. And typically what we also will see is that it's spreading effectively from person to person. And it's uh, oftentimes there's not uh, very much or any pre-existing immunity in the population. And so this is what allows these types of germs, uh, often viruses, to really be able to spread at such a wide scale. You know, there's other, um, you know, other types of, you know, regional epidemics or outbreaks, and those are typically going to be more geographically constrained. And in my reading, the thing that struck me was pandemics have much greater secondary effects and that I'd really just considered a pandemic as a lot of infectious outbreaks in different places, not realising the, 
the significant secondary impacts on society and what needs to be done at a national or global scale. Has that been your general experience with people that aren't in the field or don't have an infectious diseases background? I think uh, generally speaking, um, it, it happens quite often that people oftentimes will be more focused within their areas of, of expertise and interest. And a lot of times the systemic view uh, and the whole system's view is is not necessarily something that you know people will piece together. So you're absolutely right that there are many instances where even local epidemics and pandemics can have multiple knock-on effects that go well beyond the um, infections and hospitalizations and deaths that you that might be experienced. Thank you. What's your general impression of the current situation the world is facing with the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think this is a, certainly a, a very um, important event for from the global perspective and what we're seeing is that there is still widespread and upward trajectory in many areas of the world. Uh, some areas of the world are, are just starting to enter that phase of the epidemic and pandemic, whereas other parts of the world seem to be close to peak or past peak. And so I think what we're seeing is still that this epidemic will continue and it's pretty noteworthy to see just the how much of the economic impacts that we're seeing as well as the public health impacts. Thank you. Are you able to make any comments about the situation in the United States that we've been following the New York Times and the the situation particularly in New York City seems quite horrific. Yes, certainly the, there has been a, a very steep uh, increase in the cases and deaths that New York has been experiencing. Now, there has been some encouraging news that the curve is starting to uh, level off, that perhaps we are starting to see some benefits from the social distancing efforts that have been put into place. But yet, uh, it's still too early to determine whether this is a you know, temporary blip or if it's going to be a trend that continues uh, as the outbreak progresses. I wanted to address the question of the effect of the pandemic on long-term care settings. We've seen reports and pictures coming out of Italy, France, Spain, the United Kingdom, and most recently, Canada around the devastating effects COVID-19 has when it enters a long-term care setting and places that have been abandoned. When, when people are looking at pandemic management and strategies, in your experience, have people ever considered the impact on older people and specifically long-term care settings? It's a very good question. And I think, you know, looking at some of the previous pandemics that have happened, especially with influenza, as well as looking at other coronaviruses that have happened with outbreaks in the past, perhaps not as large, but we have seen in both of those types of situations that there is a higher mortality rate among elderly especially. And there is not always well understood why, but there is a, the greater possibility of having comorbid conditions, for example, and other risk factors that uh, you know do put those age groups at a higher risk. And so it is something that you know, we have seen in the past and could be planned for, but I also think that it is a lot of times that these kind of long-term care facilities perhaps do not have as much of a focus on planning for these types of larger events that are less frequent but can have very severe impact. That's certainly been our team's experience when we have examined the published literature and reports around the, the country and around the world. There's very little that describes the impacts in long-term care. And I think that partly contributes to the fact that the level of preparation hasn't been, uh, hasn't been to the extent that we want. Oh, I might move on now to ask, how do you assess the path of the COVID pandemic 
now based on your and your colleagues' past research? Is it what you expect? Well, every um, epidemic and pandemic takes on its own flavor and characteristics. I think this particular one, there are some aspects that are in line with what we may have expected from looking at historical or previous pandemics, um, especially it bears a lot of resemblance to some of the historical influenza pandemics with respect to spread from person to person through a respiratory transmission and actually large number of asymptomatic infections that make it more difficult to, to contain. So that sort of uh, global spread picture is something that, that we have observed in the past. I think what uh, is really unique about this one is the level of social distancing and economic disruption that we've seen. Some of the previous epidemics and pandemics we've looked at have caused this level, and certainly through modeling scenarios and looking at possible outcomes, these are the types of scenarios that we, you know, we previously identified as being possible. But I think the fact that we're really seeing it, you know, in 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 the living world is something that is very eye-opening for people. You've anticipated my next question, which was the what you've called the knock-on effects, or or what I've referred to as secondary or the non-direct effects of the pandemic which include the social isolation, the job losses, these have been far greater than I ever imagined. And I assume that's typical for most of us that we didn't consider that these knock-on effects. Do you think that we've underestimated the potential flow-on? Well, I think it's it's a very interesting question. When we look at what's happened historically, it's really only a subset of what can actually happen and what's possible. And so while these historical data points and previous pandemics and epidemics that have occurred are very important to look at and to consider, we really have to apply more of a forward-thinking approach as we plan for what is going to be the next pandemic. And a lot of how we do this is through simulation modeling, we uh, run you know, large-scale simulations of how an epidemic or pandemic might spread from person to person and place to place, and with many different variations of the input parameters and assumptions. And that's what allows us to really take into account the, the present-day context with respect to, for example, how globally interconnected the world is as well as some of our abilities with mitigation measures or medical countermeasures. When we account for all of these different factors, that's what really can allow us to anticipate what sorts of epidemics and pandemics may be possible in the future. Some people have been arguing that the cure is worse than the disease, that all the restrictions to prevent the infection will cause far greater damage. Do you have any thoughts or comments about that? It is a very tough question that uh, it's oftentimes, you know, public health officials or those who are in positions of power have very difficult decisions to make in these circumstances. And a lot of times it is a question of trade-offs. And there, I think there's no question that without some of the measures that are put into place, this pandemic would have been far worse with many more deaths. And you know the extent to which that trade-off occurs with the economic impacts, I think it's, it's a very difficult question to, to answer, especially prospectively. And even after the event, I think there will be many debates about whether this was warranted. But you know, I think what, what we typically will see here is that people are making the best decisions they can with the information they have at that time. Thank you. The other important debate I wanted to raise with you is the community or the people's right to know. For example, do we have a right to know the extent and location of infectious outbreaks, how decisions and priorities are being set around a country's response? Do you have a view about what information should and shouldn't be shared with the public or should or shouldn't be shared with health professionals? 
Well, I think when it comes to information, I think, you know, knowledge is power. I think we want to guard against misinformation as much as possible. So to the extent that we can get, you know, official and verified information from appropriate sources, I think this, uh, you know, helps people to make better decisions. I think we do have to balance that against certain privacy requirements, and many countries have restrictions around releasing health information of individuals, which should continue to be protected. But when it comes to looking at the broader scale trends and understanding which locations are um, showing uh, more infections or you know, hospitalizations, that type of information is actually mandated to be reported in many countries to you know to health officials so that they they can make that informa- make the best decisions with that information. Meta, thank you for commenting on that debate. The other debate that I wanted to to advance is this issue where people say the right to know is negated by the potential panic it creates. And potential panic in the long-term care setting, people have highlighted the abandonment of nursing homes in Spain, where the military have had to step in. People have argued that collating that information and providing it will uh, unsettle and undermine efforts to promote better care. Do you have a view about the provision of factual information and the degree of panic it does or doesn't cause? Well, I think a lot of how the public health community, it's it's very important to have appropriate risk and information communication methods and typically providing more information instead of less information uh, will lead to greater, or I, I should say lesser panic, just in the sense that when there's an information vacuum, then uh, you know there's less to combat rumors or misinformation. And I think to the extent that authorities can provide timely information, even if it's Perhaps uh, you know it could could contain information that might not be the the most optimistic or the best you know show the best case scenario. I think it's still helpful uh, to see that, and I think people with more information and if it's presented in a a way that you know does take into account that you know how people may react to it, I think that can be beneficial for. For the broader community. That really reinforces the message around information and knowledge being a powerful tool. The the final question that I come to is what do you consider is the most important and the most difficult aspect of managing a pandemic? Well, I would say the most important part is really to be ready and prepared ahead of time. I think, you know, now we're 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 in the phase where we are responding, but there is enough information and uh, understanding of what can cause pandemics and how they can unfold where it is possible to be able to reach a level of preparedness you know, ahead of time. And I think that's the number one key for any types of organization, whether it's a government or a commercial entity that really trying to get ahead of of this before a crisis emerges is is the key here and you know once once it's happened then certainly you're going to be in response mode and to the extent that preparations have occurred ahead of time you know the response would go more smoothly uh, thank you did you have any uh, last comments for us about what the future may hold well, I think one one thing that I can say with some certainty is that these you know epidemics and pandemics will continue to occur and with some degree of frequency. Um, there's some evidence that they're even increasing in frequency. And so I think it's very important for us as a society to really be better informed and prepared for these types of events. Thank you very much for your time, Nita. We wish you well. All right. Well, thank you. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.